1: This is
0: William McVeigh,
1: and you're on the What's Up Next podcast. This is Chelsea Brennan, and you're listening to the What's
2: Up Next podcast.
0: Hey, this is Russ Thornton, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast.
2: So nice to be here. This is Michelle P. Cooper on the What's Up Next podcast. Welcome to What's Up
1: Next, where your hosts, Paul David Thompson and Doc G, take the discussion on topics in the financial independence movement to the next level. Guest panelists share their opinion to questions that don't have clear answers to help you refine your path to financial independence.
3: Welcome. This is Paul David Thompson from Ready Investor One. And this is Doc G from
4: diversified.com. So Paul Thompson, what's up next? Well, Doc, we have a
3: really interesting conversation today where we have a panel of four guests who are going to share with us, how do you financially cope after the death of a loved one? So I'm going to give each one of them a chance to do a quick introduction. Uh, William, do you mind going first? My name is William McVeigh. I lost my wife to cancer about five years ago. Well, thank you for being on here and sharing your story. Chelsea, how about you?
1: I'm Chelsea Brennan. I'm an ex-hedge fund investor and founder of Smart Money Mamas, where we created the In Case of Emergency binder to help families prepare for disaster events.
3: Can't
0: wait to hear more about that. Thank you for being on here. Russ, can you go next, please? Thanks, Paul. Uh, My name is Russ Thornton. I'm a fee-only financial advisor. I work primarily with baby boomers with a specialty uh, working with women that are now on their own as a result of divorce or as is relevant to our conversation today, dealing with widowhood. Wonderful. Looking forward to hearing more. Michelle, can you
3: give us a quick introduction, please?
2: be happy to. My name is Michelle P. Cooper, and I am a former Wall Street executive with a 21-year career that recently left to found XMLW Women Wealth and Wellness, where we focus on working with women and families and helping them reach financial independence. I'm also an author.
4: All right, Michelle. So I'd like to start with you. A number of years ago, you got a phone call from your husband and it didn't sound exactly right. And a few weeks later, after not hearing from him, you get another phone call from the police saying that they had found his body. Obviously, this was an incredibly stressful time for you. You had two young toddlers, and in the first chapter of your forthcoming book, I've Still Got Me, you talk about everything being a blur at that time, not remembering much, but you do say you remembered one thing at the end of that chapter. You say you remembered a piece of advice from your financial advisor. Tell us a little bit about the events of your life during that time and what that piece of advice was.
2: Well, you synthesize it so succinctly into two events, uh, two phone calls, and there was a lot going on in between that. But my financial advisor played a big role in my getting through this period in my life and actually not only getting through it, but being quite successful and thriving as I went through the years and was able to cope with raising kids and family. But my financial advisor asked me, Michelle, are you going to keep your house? And that question to me triggered lots of anxiety because even though I was in the financial field, working at Merrill Lynch, helping families with their estate plans, I had not really dissected my own financial situation myself. And so having that looming cloud of can I stay in my house that I have as my security with my children was a question that I had to answer.
4: Russ, pick up on that for me a little bit the house, is that a major issue that people deal with, with the loss of a loved one?
0: Yeah, the house is interesting for a lot of people. Uh, Maybe for most people, it's their largest financial asset but beyond the finances, it has a ton of emotional ties. You could have been in this house for 10, 20, 30 years. You could have raised a family from young children and seen them out the door to college. But you could have a, a ton of memories, good, bad, and otherwise in the home. So beyond the financial impact, there's a lot of emotional impact. And in my experience, when someone's dealing with an event like widowhood, the loss of a spouse or the loss of a loved one, it feels like your whole world's being turned upside down. And a lot of times your home is that kind of place of safety of familiarity kind of feels like a safe harbor in the midst of everything else that's going crazy in your life. So I think it's interesting, Michelle, that you kind of highlighted that question about the house because I think that's really a key touchstone for a lot of people that are dealing with such an an emotional event in their life like the loss of a spouse.
4: Russ, you wrote a post on your blog called Seven Financial Tips for the First Year as a Widow. And in there, you talk about the importance of having good advisors in general. And Michelle mentioned her financial advisor. What other types of advisors do you suggest that someone just going through widowhood needs?
0: let me first be clear when I say advisor it doesn't necessarily have to be a professional it could be a close friend it could be a family member the most important takeaway is that it's someone that you trust implicitly and then has your best interest at heart having said that beyond immediate friends immediate family other professionals that can offer a lot of assistance and guidance when you're dealing with the loss of a loved one or the loss of a spouse is a CPA or an accountant someone that is familiar with all the tax aspects of the moving parts that you might be dealing with with relation to things like your home or savings and investment accounts, pensions, if you're above age 70 and you're having to deal with the required minimum distributions from an IRA for example, that's something that needs to be addressed and something you might not have familiarity with. Uh, an attorney, an estate planning attorney or probate attorney, those are often one and the same. They can be super helpful. A financial advisor uh, can be helpful. I will add, I always encourage people to be uh, to have a healthy dose of skepticism because there are a lot of advisors out there that talk a good game, but ultimately a lot of them are unfortunately uh, more in it for their own benefit than necessarily yours. There are a lot of great people out there that can offer a lot of good, timely advice. But unfortunately, it's kind of on you to discern the good from the bad. And so be very careful, be very skeptical. In this instance, trust your gut. If you feel the least bit concerned about something you're hearing or being told, walk away. There's plenty of advisors out there, plenty of good folks that are able and willing to help.
2: So let me jump in and make a comment from what you just said, and I think you bring up a good point that a lot of financial advisors are out there, but not everybody can be trusted. And one of the things that really helped me was that I implicitly trusted the financial advisor that I had been with for many, many years. And I think it's important when people are in an event, a tragedy in their life, that they don't jump at the first thing, that they pause and really get to know the people that they might be working with professionally. Very important point.
1: Absolutely. And we talk about in the in case of emergency binder a lot about if you're a spouse who manages the finances and your significant other doesn't, even if you don't use a financial advisor, making sure you lay out for them what to be looking for or specific people that you trust and that you turn to so that they have a starting point of like they're not just waiting, you know, the first person that comes up on Google to call because you don't know what the quality is going to be there.
4: William, I'd like to bring this conversation to you a little bit. What Michelle describes is a cataclysmic event. What you went through was a process of dealing with illness, and I'm sure it had lots of ups and downs. When you're in the midst of the illness process, do you have the emotional wherewithal to get your ducks in order to find the advisors and to plan for the worst case scenario? Honestly, I did not.
5: My wife, Amber, contracted breast cancer about 10 years ago. And then the outcome of that was always thought to be recovery. We never spent a lot of time focused on the what if. We were focused entirely on the recovery and things are going to suck for a while as she goes through her treatments. We got through her initial round of treatments and then about five years later it reoccurred and it was stage four at that point. And even then we didn't really set out to kind of okay. We made some minor changes Uh, related to like always saying I love you to the kids and putting a lot more time with the boys, but never really explicit conversations about, okay, these are the things that I do and this is how I do it. Uh, So when she passed away, there was a level of reverse engineering that I had to do on how she paid her bills, how she managed the checkbook, for example.
4: So Chelsea, this makes me think, you know, we are superstitious people. And so a lot of people are uncomfortable planning out these scenarios when they feel completely healthy. And then on the other hand, as William is saying, once illness occurs, it can be very emotionally difficult to assess these issues. What has been your experience uh, with people and the in case of emergency binder? Have they been afraid to start the process?
1: You know, the most people that I speak to have seen this somewhere in their lives. They've lost a parent. They've seen a friend lose a spouse. They know the mess that happens afterwards, and it makes it easier to start the process. For people who don't have it or haven't seen it before, it really has to be a thing of here's what happens, and here's what you need to think about. Once that door is cracked, it's easier to get started. And we found it's really helpful. So after someone purchases the binder, they go through and we check in with them every couple of weeks until the binder's filled out and making sure we're giving them some accountability because it is a hard thing to think about. And filling this type of information out and really sitting down and thinking about it is emotionally draining. But for people who've seen it before or really understand the impact, it's much easier to get started.
5: To follow up on that, it didn't take much after I went through the process of figuring all that out for me to realize that if something were to happen to me, I was causing the same problem for whoever would be taking care of my kids. So I started documenting in pretty great detail. I just fired up a Google Doc um, sheet that I have. Let's see, my trustee as well as the custodians for my children are all shared on that document. As something occurs to me, like what happens if the guardian doesn't want to take care of cats. So where do the cats go? And trying to document as much as I can so that whoever takes care of my kids and their money afterwards understands what my situation is.
2: I can jump in here too. Uh, The binder is a great idea. And also what William brings out, that after you go through an event, you really have a different perspective on things. In my own case, I wrote a book so that people that have not gone through their own event can connect with my story. And I talk about in different chapters, emotionally, what it feels like if all of a sudden you're a single parent and you realize that if something happens to you, there's no one else for your kids. So being prepared with this binder, also having an estate plan in place is something that I completely advocate and finding an attorney that specializes in estate planning because it's a specialty unto itself. But the binder is a wonderful way to have everything in one place and to be able to update uh, the most important aspects of managing your affairs if you're not able.
1: So both of my parents actually lost parents when they were young and that helped guide a lot of what got put into this development of this when I was pregnant with my first child. And one of the things my mother said was having written down her best friend's phone number because the person who picked her up after her father passed away didn't know who to call, who she could trust, who would put some kind of normalcy and they were able to call and she went to her best friend's house and waited for her mom to be able to come get her and tell her what happened. And like, so we make sure to include all that stuff and we update once a year of, you know, who are the boys? teachers, and you know, what's their favorite song and what's their bedtime routine so that there's at least some sense of normalcy if they're ever away from you, either short term or from a death.
4: So Russ, this is a little bit of my story too. So one of the reasons I wanted to do this episode is my father died when I was eight years old and part of the lore of our family, I don't remember at the time, but my mom told me that I, at some point a few months into it, came to her and said, okay, so now dad has died. If something happens to you, what's next? So I'm wondering, Russ, are your clients ready to talk about these things so soon after a raw incident like losing a spouse? Are they ready to talk about what next for the
0: kids? I'll give you the answer that I hate to give. Uh, it depends. Everybody handles grief and transition in their kind of their own way and their own timetable. Uh, And a lot of it depends on the situation that their spouse or their loved one was in leading up to death. If it was a long protracted illness or they kind of see it coming, a lot of times they're well into or maybe beyond the grieving process and they're absolutely ready and willing to talk about what needs to happen to get their affairs in order and to protect their loved ones in case something happens to them. In my experience, in the event of a more sudden death when you don't have the benefit of foresight or the ability to kind of plan ahead and see this coming, it's raw, it's kind of an open nerve and typically you need to give that person some time to uh, deal with those emotions and the grieving process and get to a point where we not only they're ready to deal with those issues but deal with it in a rational manner where they can better deal with the emotional aspect that go hand in hand with that
5: Personally, when Amber passed away, I was looking for anything I could do to kind of take my mind off of things. So having things I needed to get done for in case something happened to me, it was an activity that I could actually kind of fill my time with. I made a lot of progress after she passed away. Not necessarily, I mean, in some respects, it was because it was an easy thing to accomplish as opposed to necessarily dealing with some of the emotional hurt or pain.
4: William, I was wondering if work also fulfilled some of that same need. I know I've heard you talk in the Choose FI episode about throwing yourself into work after the death of your wife. Do you think that plays that role also? I initially took FMLA, Family
5: Medical Leave Act, after the immediate period of time after she passed away, just because my brain was not functional. I wouldn't have been able to accomplish my day-to-day tasks at work. After I did get back to work it was another easy thing for me to kind of fill my time with and it was something that had a lot of control. I was good at it or I am good at it so it was an easy sense of control. It's kind of whenever you kind of dig or jump entirely into something though you kind of lose balance and so in addition to being a really good employee I probably wasn't the greatest of fathers at that period of time.
4: Michelle, I'm interested in you commenting on the same aspect. When the worst happens and you've got little babies at home and you've got so much on your plate, how do you balance your financial well-being in future with the emotional needs of your children?
2: It's almost an impossible task, but you do it because you have to do it. In my own situation, I didn't have time to really grieve. I took time off of work only to figure out how I was going to manage with getting help for the twins. They were two uh, when my husband passed away. And I went back to work probably two weeks after uh, Scott was found. And uh, I was just waking up and going on to the next task. It was an out of body experience almost and a lot of it has faded from memory, thankfully. But I didn't have really a chance to to sit in the grief and it was just continuing to take care of the kids and, and work and, and make sure the roof stayed over our head.
4: Your story, Michelle, is so similar to what I remember as my mother's story. She is a CPA and when my father died, she was in the middle of business school, but she had never written a check. On her own. So, this is the 1980s. She had never written a check. My father had always done it. And I feel it's an interesting juxtaposition the fact that she was actually the CPA or studying to be a CPA, yet she didn't handle the home finances. And I'm wondering if your situation was similar. You worked in the financial industry, but were you the one who managed the dollars and cents at home?
2: I was not. And it wasn't because I couldn't do it. It was because we were so busy straddling, taking care of the kids and the home responsibilities that Scott liked to do it. And I said, great. You know, I trusted him. He was a mutual fund tracker and good with our taxes. And so I divided and conquered and took care of the kid responsibilities and scheduling. But that, in hindsight, was a big mistake. And another reason that I, I've still got me is because It's important to be aware, even if you're not the person in the relationship that pays the bills or manages the money, it's important to be aware of how to get it done and at least what the other person is doing, make sure your name is done, everything. There are many key tips that I picked up by going through this.
1: So we're on the flip side, where I actually manage all our finances, and my husband is a stay-at-home dad and doesn't touch it at all. So we instituted a rule right after our son was born that the month before we update, like our legacy binder, uh, he has to do the bills that month of the year, uh, and it's just like a practice round of, hey, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, like you'll be, I know you'll be okay, like you'll be able to at least keep things running.
3: I think that's a really good idea because I I fall into the same, maybe it's traditional gender roles, but in our household, I do the bills and i kind of the breadwinner and my wife is the one that takes care of the family. And it's something we've chosen to do. But the kind of the question I have sinking in here is if you're listening to this and you find yourself in a similar role or even in a similar situation like we are, whereas the traditional gender roles are reversed, where the point being one party of the relationship is focusing all on the money and running the household, then what should we be doing in preparation for that? I'll go first to Russ. What are your thoughts on that in preparation for, and this could be even be temporary. It may not be in long-term. I like this idea of just doing one month. Do you have any other thoughts about that, Russ?
0: Yeah, as a quick aside, I mean, you know, one of the benefits of marriage or partnership is that you get to delegate responsibilities because it doesn't make sense for uh, a husband and wife or two partners to be doing all the same things all the time. So it's not like one person says, I'm educated, but I'm going to let my spouse or partner handle the finances now because that's just the way it is. It just falls into that over time. I encounter that with a lot of people, but something that Doc said earlier about his mom being trained to be a CPA in business school, having never written a check, you'd be amazed at how often I encountered that. So whether it's something that Chelsea and her husband do where it's kind of one month, a year, or a lot of couples I work with, I recommend they do like a quarterly board meeting. So almost kind of treat your family finances like a company, uh, not with reporting or anything like that, but but almost think of it like, all right, well, if one spouse is kind of the CFO and kind of assumes the primary financial responsibility for bill paying and looking at investments, et cetera, et cetera, they need to let the other members of the board, i.e. their husband wife spouse partner let them know what's going on and it doesn't have to be a deep dive it doesn't have to take hours on end but you know at least once a quarter I think is great to go to dinner or have dinner at home and take 20 or 30 minutes and just go through things at a high level give your your significant other the opportunity to ask questions and make sure they're on the same page and they might say hey thanks you told me more than I want to know But I think giving them the opportunity to have a voice and have a role in better understanding where things are is super important, especially in the event of a tragedy like the loss of a loved one or a spouse or some some of the things we're talking about here.
4: William, I'd like to push that actually question to you too, and eventually, Michelle, also. In the event of losing a spouse, who becomes your special person that you include on those same conversations that you normally would have with a spouse? Go ahead, William. For me, that's become my
5: parents probably. I mean, my parents had a good insight into our finances even before my wife passed away, but my dad has a strong financial background as well as investing. And we don't always see eye to eye, but at least he knows where my current strategy is or where my current thoughts are. I've had some friends that are a little bit further remote and they're in the line of succession if my parents aren't available, but I also talk to them. One thing related to what Russ was talking about earlier, it's important not to just be at a high level. I would recommend following some of Chelsea's advice about having a run through just so that account access, for example, was one thing that I struggled with. So I needed to get access to online banking, for example, and I could always go into the bank, but establishing my own credentials and getting access into the accounts for doing the bill paying um, the way that Amper had uh, took a little bit more time. So I'd recommend things like a shared password manager or things like that to actually not just at a high level of this is where we're going, but this is how you actually do step by step.
4: All right. So most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. You know what? Michelle, I'd like you to address that too. Who do you end up sharing your passcodes with? How do you set things up so that in the absence of a spouse, there's someone there to look after all the necessities if something were to happen to you?
2: I think it's important to have a BFF, your best financial friend, that you can be open with. And in my case, uh, when Scott passed away, that was my dad. And I talked to him about my personal situation. You know, the house was a big component of decision making. Eventually, I got remarried, and not only my dad, actually who passed away, but my husband now is my financial BFF. And I have an advisor that I also run ideas through. But with the passwords and making sure names are on the accounts, I talked to my husband. He knows my story, our situation, and he knows that. He needs to know what the passwords are and be aware of what we own, what we owe, what our goals are, and if we're reaching those goals.
3: So I have a question to kind of taking the next step is in much of these, uh, I think of the two examples that were given that it was a direct family member that was your financial friend that would help you in these situations. But not everybody has parents that have the acumen or the wherewithal to help them. And I think some of the advice was talking to somebody outside your family about money. While I believe and think that's good advice, I think I'm not projecting too far into the audience when I say that's not common for us to talk about money openly, especially outside of our families about actually like account access? Am I hearing that right that the advice is that it is good to have somebody who has access to your accounts? Go ahead, Chelsea.
1: So LastPass, which is what we use as our password security manager, allows you to name a next of kin. So my best friend and my oldest son's uh, godmother, who would have the kids if something happened, both my husband and I, she has ability if we passed away to submit to LastPass and then get all access. So she doesn't have it all the time, but she generally knows what's going on with our finances. And if she needed access, then she could get access.
3: That's perfect because I actually use the same service. And for those of you who are not aware, LastPass is a password manager that has really thought through a lot of the, these implications from what I can tell, and, it's, and Chelsea's not in her head. And I think there's a free version, and then the pro version is something like $12 a year, if I remember correctly. So it's a really affordable... It's
5: now actually up to 24 a year.
3: A year. So yeah, clarify. $24 a year for the professional level.
2: Another thing along those same lines to think about is to have a power of attorney document. The general power of attorney is going to allow your agent to step into your shoes and you have your passwords listed, make sure you know, they can get in your accounts.
4: So I'd like to transition the conversation a little bit and move over to you, Russ. I've seen in your writing, and I've seen this other places too, that it seems like in the midst of the death of a loved one, there's a lot of pressure to make quick
0: decisions. Can you talk about that a little bit? I think a lot of the pressure is self-imposed. I think a lot of people that have lost a loved one or lost a spouse feel like, especially if they haven't been maybe uh, as actively involved in the family finances or in other family matters, I think they oftentimes feel this responsibility to kind of embrace their new situation and deal with things. And, And I think a lot of them, frankly, kind of want to check things off their to-do list just to feel like, all right, I've addressed that, I've addressed that, to feel like they're making progress, which is good. But I've found that with the exception of maybe a couple of things like dealing with survivor benefits and dealing with insurance and things like that, there's rarely anything that has to be dealt with immediately, like within days or even within a few weeks of the loss of a loved one. So I find it's often good to pause, take a step back if you have the ability and wherewithal to do that. I mean, if you have to jump back into the workforce or jump back into work or you're dealing with young children or whatever whatever. Obviously you got to get done what you got to get done. But I think kind of the bigger picture issues, like dealing with some of the things we've talked about, like, all right, now who's my financial go-to person and how do I handle my account access and things like that? How do I set up all this stuff for myself that maybe I didn't have set up for my loved one that's passed away? That needs to be addressed and that needs to be addressed sooner than later, but it's not something that, God willing, it's not something that has to be addressed tomorrow. So I think it's about striking a balance, finding something that works for you personally, and making sure that things don't go unattended, but not feeling like you have to rush headlong into what can be some pretty serious, significant, and uh, long-lasting decisions, especially as they relate to your financial situation. So I think it's good to take a step back, take a breath, and go forward with intention and as clear ahead as possible. I didn't really make any financial decisions for probably the first two months.
5: Everything pretty much kept on autopilot. I received the life insurance check. The first week was strictly focused on funeral arrangements and then started working on trying to find childcare. It wasn't until I felt like I had my head kind of in a good place that I started dealing with financial decisions. And even that I kept pretty minimal because I knew I wasn't in a proper frame of mind for long-term decisions.
2: Similar situation for me. I was very conservative. I wanted to make sure that any money I had, I wasn't going to lose. And so I stayed in cash for a long period of time until I felt ready to take on market risk. And I think it's important not to feel pressured or pushed when you're in a completely vulnerable situation.
3: We haven't talked about life insurance here any so What I was thinking about that is I think we all know that we should have life insurance and it sounds like in y'all's cases, y'all probably did. I have never had to file for life insurance after a death of a loved one. What is that process like? What would you take away from that process that you would share with the audience who, heaven forbid, may deal with this someday?
0: I can speak kind of uh, at a high level, not from personal experience, but typically uh, if your loved one had a life insurance policy on which you are a beneficiary, uh, you would contact the underwriting firm or the the life insurance company, notify them of the death. Uh, Oftentimes they're going to ask for a copy of a death certificate. Oftentimes they want a certified copy of a death certificate, which is uh, pretty straightforward and something that you'll typically address during or after you're making funeral arrangements and things of that nature. And most reputable insurance companies are pretty good to respond quickly once you provide the necessary documentation. They can often issue a check or wire funds or transfer funds electronically to bank account that you designate within a matter of days. So it's usually a pretty turnkey process, but perhaps Michelle or William can speak more from personal experience.
5: I collected two life insurance policies. I had a life insurance policy through my employer. So it was one of those, take out a few dollars out of your check to get a multiple out of your pay that applied to Amber. And then the main policy was primarily a life insurance policy company, and it took longer than you might suspect. So if you're depending on a life insurance policy in order to get you through a period of time, think about how long it might take to actually get the money. Because for me, it took probably a good week or so before I even had death certificates. And then it took another week or so in order to actually get the policies in my hand and able to be used. I guess the two words of advice I'd have is don't overlook what you might have through an employer plan. People have emergency funds for a reason. This would be an emergency fund kind of situation.
2: I can comment a little bit on this. I would say there's four takeaways that I have. First one is that if you're not the person paying the bills. You have to make sure that the premium's been paid because you might have life insurance, at least you think you do, and then when the time comes... Maybe the person in charge of uh, that premium didn't pay it. So that's the first thing. Second thing is when you're thinking about life insurance, make sure that you have enough term insurance to cover your needs if the breadwinner is the spouse that passes away. And so many families that I've worked with don't have enough term insurance to really carry them through to get the kids through college. It's usually in my book around 50000 per, uh, or excuse me, a million per each 50000 that you need. return. The other tip I would have is don't just rely on insurance that your job provides because you might be moving from one job to another. Get an individual term policy and make sure your beneficiaries are filled out on it. And think about this when you're young, because the older you are, the more expensive it is.
4: Chelsea, I'm wondering, the ice binder does so many important things to prepare us for tragedy. Does it also give you a series of steps to take
1: when tragedy happens? Is that part of the process? So it depends on the section. It's mostly laid out to have you fill in what steps are appropriate for your family. So one of the most important parts is there's pages to fill out what you do every month for finances, like how you pay the bills, where there are auto investments from, auto withdrawals, auto pay, all that's laid out. But there's also a part for what do you do with the life insurance money and what do you do first? So one of the most common things I've heard from customers is that they write down like, take the insurance money, put it in a high interest savings account and wait four to six months before you make any major decisions. Like just give yourself some breathing room, there's enough money to cover your expenses and then figure it out. So it lays all that out. And then specifically for like families with kids or military family, there are pages that exactly lay out who do you have to call to get make sure that you get your benefits? Who do you have to call to like let schools know that the caregiver has changed and things like that. So that is laid out as well.
4: So, Russ, what we're talking about right now, what we've been talking about is survival. How do you survive when the unthinkable happens? But ultimately, we're hoping our audience members, as well as our friends and loved ones who go through this, will thrive. So tell me, you've been through this now, I imagine, with a number of widows. When does the mindset change from just getting by to start looking forward again and to start trying to thrive?
0: Again, it depends. I think a lot of it depends on age. A lot of it depends on family situation and support network. Do they have other friends or family or a church or other organizations that they're involved in that kind of help them move forward and kind of get back on their feet? I would say in my experience, and again, I think everybody's probably going to be a little bit different. I would say it's a good... 12 to 18 months plus before you start to feel like some sense of normalcy again in your life. Not that it ever goes back to being normal. This is obviously a life event that you'll carry with you for the rest of your life. But I think, in terms of being able to think a little bit more clear headedly again, uh, making decisions, being a little bit more rational, a little less emotional, begin to address some of the things that maybe you decided to put off initially. I would say give it a good 12 to 18 months, maybe longer. Again, it's going to really depend on the person, their situation, and kind. Kind of the support network that they've either built or that they naturally have around themselves. One thing I'll add is I find time and again that people are amazingly resilient animals. And I think a lot of times that we think of widows or widowers as this fragile person or entity that we have to really walk on eggshells around. And obviously, there's a time and place for candor and a time and place to be compassionate and thoughtful in our words and our actions. But I find a lot of these people are They're a lot more resilient and able to move forward than we often give them credit for.
4: William, this makes me think a lot about you. You are the chief technology officer of the Choose FI podcast. FI, financial independence. Is financial independence even a possibility for someone who's lost a spouse? In addition to
5: that, there's another complicating factor with my life is that both of my children have autism. So there's also a special needs component like the second generation. So it's a very hard question for me personally to say financial independence because I'm also thinking about their financial life and they will likely not be financially independent. Hopefully they'll be living independently at some point, but even that's up in the air. So it's a hard question for me to answer and... In a lot of ways, it's kind of why I stayed with my job rather than necessarily following some of the things I might have wanted to do with my time otherwise. I certainly had the resources, especially after Amber' insurance policy came through, that I could have quit my job then and been financially independent. She and I were actually focused on financial independence or retiring early when it was like the idea was in our early 50s after the boys had gotten out of the house. We'd planned on spending some time off and actually vacationing and traveling. So... When we consolidated the financial assets of two people down into one person, that alone was enough for me to quit if I wanted to. I didn't want to at the time. Like I said, I felt really kind of motivated to continue working. But yeah, I mean, I think that financial independence in general is something that can be achieved by a widower as much as any of us can be independent of anything.
4: Yeah, I'm going to ask the same question to Michelle, but I want to ask you one more question, William. So what changed? You eventually did leave your job. What changed? Uh, the realization that I didn't need
5: the income from my prior job and that the only reason why I was really doing it, although I enjoyed the job, it really was much more an artifact of inertia. I was doing it because that's what I was doing when Amber had passed away and I just kind of continued. I would shifted roles but I didn't really put a lot of thought into, is this really what I want to be spending my time on? As well as the fact that my boys are 16 and like I said, they have more requirements for like therapies and things like that. So I felt that my time could be better spent, focus on them when I could. And then when they're at school and things like that, I can be working on really more entrepreneurial tasks that kind of excited me really wasn't excited to wake up and go to work, and I missed that.
4: Michelle, I would ask you the same question. Is financial independence a reasonable goal for a widower? And if it is, do you feel like what happened to your husband makes you wanna work less or work more?
2: I would say that financial independence is definitely achievable if you are a widow or widower. It really depends on the planning that you have in place and your lifestyle in my own situation i did have insurance thankfully but i knew from planning and having financial roadmap that it would be in my best interest to continue with my career and my job at merrill lynch because it was providing a good income and good benefits and i was frankly afraid to leave there were days when i did want to be with my kids But in hindsight, I am very glad that I stayed there for the 21 years, and it gave me the independence now to make a choice to have more purpose in my career, write a book, and uh, start a new venture.
4: Chelsea, I'd like to turn it over to you. I imagine in the process of doing your In Case of Emergency Binder, people naturally wanted to come and tell you their stories. So I'm wondering if you could share with us some of the stories of how people have not only survived, but thrived after tragedy.
1: So a lot of the stories, you know, I think everyone that I spoke to is okay now and is living and thriving. But I think for a lot of people, it was an outlet for the trauma part of it, of like, let me tell you the worst moment of my life. So when that happened uh, in late July, I had over a hundred of these like insane stories. um, And some of which were almost humorous of like this guy whose uh, father-in-law passed away and he was helping his wife get through the process and they didn't have the code to the safe. So the father always told everyone that all the documents and everything they needed was in the safe, but forgot to tell anybody the code of the safe. So it was built into the house, and they were he was like, I'm like Googling how to break into this safe. I'm on some FBI watch list. We don't know what to do. <laughs> so there was that, and then there was... A really sad incident of a woman who wrote, reached out to me that her father died a week after her older sister turned 18. Her parents were divorced and she was named as the beneficiary on the accounts and that meant it got turned over to her. She was 16 at the time and her older sister to deal with everything. They weren't, because of her parents were divorced, her mom wasn't able to help them at all with the decisions. Things were a mess. She's like, I remember being a teenager sitting in his house just trying to sort through his paperwork and it was horrifying. She's like, I hate that all these years later, I'm still mad at him. She's like, I miss him, but I'm also mad at him for making us go through that. process that was just really hard to hear and as a parent was a moment of like this is why we need to have these things laid out because you know we can put people in these really difficult situations but definitely a lot of stories and a lot of people that said like it took them a year to really get through the process and feel like they weren't fielding phone calls and you know trying to settle things or things weren't popping up that they realized were still being paid they didn't know about but that it got better over time and they wish that it had just been laid out in the first place
4: before we get back to our main question the main reason i wanted to do this episode which i've told each of you at some point before we started is this is my story so my father died when i was eight years old i thought it was really important for our audience and people to know that you can do more than just survive so i was eight years old My father's life insurance policy paid for all three of us, us, his three boys, to go to college and paid for most of us to go to grad school. And the life insurance investments eventually paid for me also to go to medical school. So I would reach out, especially to Michelle and William, and say, as the child of someone who lost a parent, I lived a magical childhood. And I think you can thrive.
3: Well, thank you for sharing that, Doc, and of all of you sharing your stories with us. Because we know this is part of life planning and it's a very heavy subject, but it's important. So I would like to give each of you a chance to share with our audience your answer to our ultimate question is, how do you financially cope after the death of a loved one? Uh, William, would you, would you mind going first? So a lot of it is don't beat yourself up too much. If in the process
5: of learning how to do it yourself or in the process of figuring out how to do things don't give yourself a lot of flexibility to make mistakes because if you're doing something that you haven't done before, mistakes will happen. And it's amazing what people can do and survive through when you have no choice. And in something like this, generally don't have any choice. Resilience is a, is a big thing.
3: Well, thank you for sharing, William. Uh, Chelsea, same question to you. How should our audience members be thinking about how to financially cope or prepare for the potential of a death of a loved one?
1: So the thing that I say most often is that people look at this as an act of fear. It's going to be superstitious if we just don't think about this. But to really try to think about it as an act of love and that you're showing them that you're caring for them even when you're not around and that you have thought about them and their well-being and come from it at that angle to give yourself a little more motivation to get it done.
3: Well said. Thank you for that. Russ, same question to you. How do our audience members think about preparing and coping with the death of a loved one?
0: The most important advice I can offer if your loved one is still alive, quit living the deferred life plan. I encounter so many people that are planning for these great retirements, you know, 10, 20, 30 years out, and they're putting off things that they might regret later. And if you think about a situation where you've lost a loved one, especially if it's a spouse, I would imagine that It's natural to think about all the things you wish you could have done or would have done when you had the chance. I think that if you have, you know, more time with your loved one, whether they're perfectly healthy or whether they're dealing with illness or whatever the situation might be, you know, enjoy every day like it's your last because, you know, as we've talked about and a couple of people, William and Michelle have given personal accounts, it can happen. Be prepared for an uncertain future, but enjoy life along the way.
3: Plan for the best, hope for the best, right? There you go. Okay, Michelle, same question to you.
2: In my mind, I think you have to give yourself time and space to accept your new situation and to be looking at things that maybe it's not the script that you wrote for yourself, but you are going to be able to overcome this tragedy that has happened in your life and to have the feeling inside that you deserve a great life and that that great life is out there for you. And it took me about eight months to actually feel that way in my situation. I felt I didn't deserve a good life after Scott passed away. I thought that no one would love me like he did. And I was wrong and I found love again. I have been able to thrive in my life. To Doc G's point, I hope my kids feel the same way you do when they're grown up, but they have you know college money tucked away. And, and I'm proud to have gone through that experience and to be able to share it and potentially help other people.
4: I think our goal all around is for our audience, for our friends and loved ones to thrive. We can't change what happens to us. We can't change what the world brings, but we can change how we cope with it. We can change who we decide to help us cope with it. And I think all of you guys have given great examples of how to face the most difficult of life situations.
3: Fantastic. Okay. So what we'll do here is we'll ask each of you to give one last question, which is what is up next for you and how can everybody get a hold of you if they are interested in knowing more about you? We'll start with Chelsea.
1: What's up next on Smart Money Mamas, which is my blog, is really building a bigger community where moms feel safe to talk about money. So you can find us in the Facebook group there at Smart Money Mamas Community. And you can also find us at smartmoneymamas.com and anywhere with that handle on social media.
3: Wonderful. Thanks for coming out today. William, how about you? What is up next for you? And how can we get a hold of you if we want to learn more about you?
1: Sure. Uh, so let's see. I've been starting
5: some entrepreneurial stuff. So been working with ChooseFI, obviously, as mentioned previously. Also, I'm starting financial coaching for people focused on early retirement and special needs, as well as software development for coaches and other bloggers and such with financial topics. Where I can be found, uh, Facebook's probably the place I'm spending most of my time. So look for me on the Choose FI Facebook group.
3: I really enjoyed some of your information that you've been sharing, especially on the ChooseFI podcast, which I'm an avid live- listener of. So if you are not already aware, check that podcast out and check out their Facebook group at ChooseFI and it's on Facebook. And Michelle, how about you? Where can we find you and what is up next for you?
2: You can find me at michellepcooper.com or I've still got me.com, and that is the title of my book to be released at the end of January, January 30th. It's called I've Still Got Me: A Widow's Journey to Love, Happiness, and Financial Independence. And I'll be talking about this book in different events throughout the Washington D.C. area and beyond. And I have also co-founded XMLW. It's ex Merrill Lynch or some guys that I worked with at Merrill Lynch. And I started this division and it's to help women achieve health, wealth, and wellness.
3: Wonderful. It's been a real pleasure having you out here. Russ, how about you? Same question. What's up next for you and where can we find you?
0: Thanks, Paul. What's up next for me is to continue serving my clients and uh, you know slowly add some more uh, really great fit clients to the financial advice work that I do. You can find me at wealthcareforwomen.com. In the coming weeks and months, I'm setting up some uh, speaking events here locally in the Atlanta area. Frankly, I can't help as many people as I would love to, so I'm just trying to you know educate and help people on the way with some of the content marketing and the writing I do on my websites and speaking and things like that. So uh, looking forward to do, doing more of that in 2019 and be. Beyond. Well, thank you so much. So Paul, I
4: got a little emotional there at the end. And that's for those who really know me, that's actually not uncommon. One thing I always say about training as a physician is you get really good At being stone faced during the most horrendous medical emergencies and then we're the same people who will sit there and start crying over a commercial on TV so I'm an emotional guy and to me this is a really emotional subject and the reason why as I said in the episode is this is my childhood story you know my father died suddenly when I was eight years old and my mom who had some financial training but certainly had never managed the finances had it all dropped in her lap. And she had three young boys and she had to worry about upkeep of the house and upkeep of the finances. And she had just finished her MBA. So she had to go out and get a job. I remember my mom taking the CPA exam six months after my dad died. She didn't have time to study for it. She went to work every day, eight to five. And I remember she was just hoping she passed. At that time, there were multiple sections and you had to pass each section. And she was so happy when she found out that she passed it the first time through and didn't have to retake it. And that was my childhood. And my dad's life insurance did eventually do really well in the stock market and paid for us to go to college and paid for me to go to medical school. In fact, I often say one of the reasons why I made it to financial independence is because of my father's life insurance policy. So this story really, really hits home for me. I'm wondering how you felt about it.
3: Well, I don't have any specific in my nuclear family, but I do have a very close cousin of mine that was, I think she was 32 when she passed away a couple of years ago from complications from lupus. And she had two young boys that were close to my son's age, maybe just a couple of years older. And it was hard and it was extremely unexpected. And so it's just a very stark reminder of how these things can happen and planning ahead and following this wonderful advice in case of emergency binder and just little tactics like making sure that your premiums are being paid in once a month, rather once a year, having the other member of your family kind of run through. That's something that I think I'm going to start implementing with my wife. she's certainly a capable person, but purposely we have split our tasks. But the same reason, she can't turn around and pay our bill if I weren't here. And I've tried to automate as much as possible, but I still have to be present to a certain degree. So I cannot even imagine what that would be like after a death, having to like kind of unravel all that and how difficult it would be. So there's some really practical tips in all this.
4: Yeah, I mean, couples divide and conquer. That's one of the benefits of being married. You know, someone has to deal with the kids to get them to practice. Another person has to make sure dinner is made. Someone might be the sole wage earner. This is what we do, and it makes our lives easier. But in the face of tragedy, it also adds another complication, a complication that we just never think about until it happens. I think I took two really powerful messages from this episode. One was what Chelsea said. You know this, in case of emergency binder, is an emotional issue, and most people avoid it because they get superstitious. They feel like it's morbid to do that and even if you god forbid have a loved one who's sick to stop and plan for their possible demise just sounds horrible and i love how she said that it's an act of love and that really hit home for me because it's taking some of those negative feelings and turning it into what it truly is which is an act of love because if your spouse or parent dies the thing they want most in the world is to know that you will be okay
3: yes and Well, obviously I never met your dad, but can you imagine the solace if you could talk to him that he would have over that? I think a lot of people have some life insurance, but a lot of us are underinsured. I remember recently going through and kind of taking an analysis of my personal situation. And I have acquired a lot of assets recently that they create income kind of on their own outside of these tax deferred buckets that we, a lot, so many people of us work in. And you kind of got to think about those differently. And so I had to kind of reevaluate my life insurance scenario because I don't want all this debt that I have that I don't consider it bad debt, but it's not consumer debt. It's debt based on assets that I don't want my wife having to fuss with. I want enough coverage so that My wife can just have these assets and have time to kind of sell them off if she wants to or somebody that I appoint to sell them off if I want to or if they want to. But having that shield of income on the front end to be able to kind of go through that emotional process without having all this extra complexity of these assets that do take management.
4: Yeah, it's not just replacing salary. So with insurance, what we're finding is people are thinking about how much it will cost to manage assets that you already have. That's part one. And then part two are future costs. The cost of sending your kids to college is a major cost. So I think Michelle even mentioned the idea of making sure you insure enough to cover future college costs. And for William, it was for the future care of his children who have special needs. So it's a complicated calculation. The other thing that I really pulled from this conversation is that it is possible to thrive. And I think not just financially, but emotionally. And that's not a reflection on the person who passed away. It doesn't mean you love them any less It doesn't mean that they were any less important. But human nature is that you have to keep going and you take one step in front of the next. And especially if you have dependents, they need that of you. And it's nice to hear from the community and know that even in the worst of all situations, we've talked about divorce here on this podcast. Well, death is a horrendous tragedy and yet you can survive and also thrive. And I think that's what's up next. So this has been the What's Up Next podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, and my co-host, Paul Thompson, we'd like to thank Chelsea Brennan, Michelle Cooper, Russ Thornton, and William McVeigh. That's a wrap. You got everybody
3: almost, almost starting to cry, Doc.
4: Yeah, well, that's my goal. But it's true. I mean, this is <laughs> Doc Thompson. got excited. Yeah, I get excited sometimes. I can't tell myself. <laughs> this is the high-level stuff here we do on the WhatsApp. Of course, I'll go ahead and record Paul making a fool of himself that we can have that for the recording. next. Hello, week.
3: this is Paul. Uh, it's...
0: <laughs>
3: Fantastic.
4: This is a good conversation. <laughs> That's a wrap. <laughs> Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast.